0: Good morning and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick Matthews and it's a pleasure to be with you on this, another wonderful Sunday. Weather's uh, not too bad at the moment. We really have hit a cold spell, haven't we? And uh, it's been a bit crazy, crazy weather, but uh, it's so nice uh, to be here with you folks to share some science news on a, a Sunday. Thanks very much to Irish Voice for the program beforehand. Fantastic sharing of Irish culture, but uh, it's so great to be with you now as we delve into the world of science. As I said, my name is Broderick Matthews, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really keen to take you through uh, all the latest that's in science. And look, I know, folks, our news is dominated by covid 19 at the moment, the coronavirus and what's going on there. And I think it's important to have a mix of news today as we reflect a bit on that, but also share some of the fantastic and interesting news that is coming out about from uh, other researchers. Because uh, while there are many scientific researchers putting work into finding uh, cures for COVID, into working towards the vaccine, into helping keep everyone safe, uh, From the other side of things, there are many, many other scientific researchers out there who are doing some amazing work. So look, I'm going to start off with some coronavirus stories today, folks, and then we're going to move into some other interesting science as well. The first piece that I want to share actually comes from the Australian Academy of Science and uh, the research and innovation sectors from Australia and New Zealand who have been working with governments to find the latest and best evidence. And recently the Rapid Research Information Forum was convened and that was chaired by Australia's Chief Scientist, Dr Alan Finkel. And it uh, benefits from the Australian Academy of Science in terms of supporting that to happen. And one of the, the purposes of this rapid uh, research information forum was to work together and rapidly answer some questions, the pressing questions about COVID-19 uh, as they emerge. And so the first three reports that came through that were published in response to questions asked by the health minister, and uh, they have been released. And uh, the first three questions: What is the impact of winter on the spread of COVID nineteen? Is reinfection possible? And what's the feasibility of monitoring wastewater for early detection and monitoring of this within the population? So let's dive into those questions now. The key findings on those reports, and I won't dive too deeply, but I will give a bit of a summary here. So what's the impact of winter going to be on the spread of COVID-19? Well, look, notwithstanding the recent emergence of uh, this virus, so it's always going to be hard to tell, research does suggest that winter will have some influence on the spread and severity of the virus. Lower humidity and air temperature throughout winter can increase the viability and the virulence of the virus. So how How easily it can spread, Uh, and so therefore that that increases its infectivity. You may hear the infectivity rate of the virus, and it's uh, pretty high. uh, Estimates by the World Health Organization show that somewhere between uh, around uh, 2 and 3.5, and uh, the median's about 2.79 up to 3.28. Basically, what that means is that for every person infected, when the virus is uncontrolled, that can go up to 3.28. That can uh, go to 3.28 other people. So basically, one person is infecting three. And you can see very quickly how exponential growth can happen from a virus like that. Uh, but luckily, uh, in Australia with our isolation conditions, we are lowering that infectivity rate, getting it below one so that the number of people with the virus can actually start to drop. Um, but as I was saying, the impact of winter is the question here, and it could increase that infectivity rate, making it more effective uh, through that. So physical distancing supported by the public policy measures uh, that are in place will have a greater impact on managing the spread of the virus than seasonal climate. So basically the physical measures that we have in place now are good they're going to have a bigger effect than the winter coming. And uh, the concurrence of COVID-19 with other viruses during winter, such as the flu, is probably going to exacerbate the demands on health services, especially for vulnerable people and communities. Uh, so that's certainly going to uh, be an important aspect to keep, on, uh, keep, an, keep uh, an idea about what's going on and, and keep that distancing in place so we can continue to stay healthy. Because at the moment we do have low flu numbers because people are isolating, they're washing their hands, they're looking after themselves and really uh, making a situation where the flu virus doesn't travel as well. But of course the other impact of winter on COVID-19 is it may further exacerbate the psychological effects of the isolation of the virus, uh, of the isolation measures that are in place because of COVID nineteen, uh, and so we really do have to keep that in consideration as we do go forward. So uh, it's th- so the summary of that really is that winter, yes, it could have an effect on the virus, but it can be controlled with physical isolation. But of course, we still have to continue to be wary of that and looking after our own mental health as well through that period. The next question that was asked was: Is reinfection with SARS-CoV-2, so the current virus, possible? Uh, because there's been a range of reports out there, anecdotal reports of patients who've recovered from COVID-19 becoming reinfected, but. They're only anecdotal reports, and in fact, the scientists say that that's probably due to testing issues in the first place. Uh, People having a test saying they didn't have it and then uh, getting retested and finding it. Uh, So look, the scientists at this stage cannot say for certain that reinfection is not possible, but the evidence so far is not compelling. Uh, the Occam's razor here, the most likely solution to this is that people are just having a misdiagnosis in their initial testing. Uh, so they go and get a test. The test says they don't have it, but then uh, they then get sick again. Uh, they, they Sorry, they get through their sickness. They get tested. They did have it, didn't they? It's It's really not because of reinfection of the virus. Overall, the scientists are saying based on the changes detected in blood cells and antibodies that are seen in most recovered patients, it could be reasonably extrapolated that individuals uh, would be protected from infection with the same strain. So basically, they're seeing blood cells, antibodies there for people who've recovered. So uh, you should be protected, at least in the short to medium term. Uh, But there's no direct evidence for immunity in patients at present. Uh, population studies would be needed to determine this with greater certainty. But of course, this is really difficult at the moment to try and do this as we are fighting the virus at this very point in time. So look, it's, uh, it's something that definitely needs further study. And a decline in immunity or mutations in the virus could result in a future scenario in which reinfection is possible. And look, that's certainly not unheard of. There's viruses out there. I think uh, something like dengue fever is a great example where there's four different types of dengue fever uh, that exist. So while you can get dengue, you build up the antibodies for it, which are there to protect you, but then you can get it again because there's four different forms of the virus. So, look, at this stage, uh, reinfection is highly unlikely. Uh, It's not something that we're expecting, but it could happen in the future with another mutation of this virus, which is even more reason why uh, coronavirus Immunisation is such an important thing for our scientists to be working on. And the final question that this rapid research and information forum was looking at under the chair of Dr Alan Finkel, our chief scientist, was what is the feasibility of monitoring wastewater for early detection and monitoring of COVID-19 in this population? And uh, you might say, well, what are you doing there? Well, wastewater-based epidemiology, or looking at what's going on in our wastewater to determine what's going on in our population, they're used in routine surveillance for human pathogens, uh, and they're also used in tracking human drug use as well uh, for things like recreational drugs. So it's, it's a common uh, technique, and it normally provides valuable public health data. Now, developing similar techniques for the detection of uh, the COVID-19 virus is currently an active area of research, and rapid improvements are to be expected. But we need further understanding of the infection biology and some standardi- some standardisation of uh, the wastewater. Uh, epidemiology methods uh, along with improvements in sensitivity and specificity so look we we're, we're working on it is is the, the call from the scientists there um the one thing to be wary about though is um the resolution of the techniques can facilitate the identification of communities in a geographic location. So there's concerns that uh, it could stigmatise certain communities. So you have to think about how the research design and the public release of data is done around this. So there you go. They're the, the three big questions that were answered uh, from this. And uh, there will be further questions to come as uh, this this forum continues to convene. Uh, looking at uh, evidence for differential learning outcomes in online versus in-class education, uh, predictive value of antibody tests, uh, impact the pandemic is having on Australia's research workforce, and vaccines and treatments being developed globally. So, look, a really interesting panel uh, that is convening to give us some data on what's going on, and I think um, some really interesting information there to share So let's move on from that now to some of the new stories. And um, one of the the ones that's out at the moment, we were talking about a coronavirus vaccine and... uh There's another potential vaccine out there taking the next step to human trials this week. Uh, There was one in China. This time, this one's in the UK, where Oxford University researchers have been working on it since January. And uh, this uh, version of the vaccine is looking at the spikes on the virus surface and targeting them with antibodies that can stick Because I don't know if you've seen the visuals out there, folks, but when we're talking about the coronavirus, corona actually comes from the word for crown. And so you're looking at a a round body that's got these spikes coming off it, like the spikes on a crown. Um, And so that's the type of virus that it is. And this antibody, this this, uh, vaccine that they've developed in the UK, is looking at targeting those spikes on the surface uh, with antibodies that stick to them. Uh, then the immune system can attack from there. Uh, Now, they're up to human trials uh, in this stage. And I think it's a good question. How are these human trials actually going to work? Well, there's, there's similar stages for all human trials of vaccines. Uh, the first human testing is involved during uh, phase one of this, uh, but there's heaps of laboratory work that goes into it before it gets to phase one of testing. So selecting the right compound, gauging how toxic it is. Uh, but at that stage, researchers actually don't know how people are going to respond. It's a really interesting spot to be in. Um, You know, we can do as many predictions as we can based on what we know is out there, but researchers honestly don't know until they get to human trial. And so this is where a small group of healthy volunteers start the first round of testing. And what they do in this testing is they start to look at regular blood tests and measure how the immune system is responding, looking for things like antibodies, T-cells to develop, Look, basically at this stage, the scientists are actually looking at safety, um, so making sure that the person is, uh, being, is safe as they go through, um, but they also want to see a vaccine that triggers uh, a rigorous immune response so that the antibodies in there are actually targeting the virus. If there's success at phase one, move on the pipeline into phase two, phase three studies, and that's when you start to look at it on a larger population scale to see whether patients that are given it are actually able to reduce uh, reducing the ability to get disease from this. So most vaccines targeting COVID nineteen are still at this early phase one stage, and uh, this one that we're talking about in the UK, the phase one plan is going to see five hundred and ten volunteers vaccinated half with the COVID-19 vaccine, and half will have a control test because, of course, any good science uh, test must have that control in there to see whether it really is the effect of the vaccine or just anything placebo or something else going on in there. Uh, So then Phase 2 is going to take some older people into the mix, uh, those aged 55 to 70, then 70-plus, and by Phase 3, 5,000 volunteers are being included now, trials like this generally go through five stages. Uh, so, from the preclinical testing, the three phases of human testing, before the final fourth phase, where the vaccine is monitored after it's beginning to be sent out into the world. Now, you might ask who signs up for these trials? Are they uh, selected? Do they volunteer themselves? Well, It's a little bit about altruism, doing something for the good of the population. It's a little bit about money, too, if it's an offer. Um, Phase one trial participants can be paid quite well, and sometimes it's up to $2,000. But every trial in each case has very strict criteria for inclusion that includes both health and psychological testing. They have to ask questions like, have you participated in a trial before, uh, you know, to stop people uh, who are professional phase one trial tourists going from one centre into the other? Because then they really wouldn't become a good population sample if they're getting all these phase one vaccines. Uh, but for the most part, the scientists say that people do want to contribute to the advancement of science and ultimately to protect other people. Of course, who's selected also depends on which stage the trial is at, what they're trying to do, younger people to start with, healthy people to start with, and then moving on to older populations from there. Um, But uh, at this stage, they're trying to push things as quickly as they can. Um, You know, normally it can take up to 12 to 18 months to develop a vaccine. Is there a way of speeding it up? Well, researchers are trying to do that. Um, But of course we have to take time to make sure that these things are safe. You know, the phase one period testing could take several months, even up to two years in normal times. Uh, So, look, no one wants to do that. So this is why labs all over the world are working in parallel or a staggered approach to try and compress the timeline. Um, You know, in the UK, the Oxford University study is increasing production of its vaccine while the first clinical trial is running so that they can have plenty of vaccine there ready for later testing, potentially a future wider rollout. Um, You know, this scale up immediately uh, means that vaccines, if this is a successful vaccine, can get out there straight away, which is not something you'd normally do in this case because, of course, you don't know uh, where it's going to work. So who's been rolling out human trials so far? Well, aside from the UK, there are two in the US, uh, but both of those are testing on fewer than 50 people. Uh, There's also a key international vaccine network known as the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, or CEPI, um, and there's three vaccines in China that are at a clinical development phase, but many more in the works. In fact, CEPI, that group I talked about, has found 115 potential vaccines for COVID-19 in various stages of development at this point in time, including ours in Australia that are being developed uh, by University of Queensland researchers, CSI researchers, CSIRO researchers, all over looking at that there. So vaccines are being developed There's a whole lot happening Um, and scientists are working as hard as they can to get it rolled out as quickly as possible. Uh, But of course we have to make sure that it is safe and effective uh, before we send it out over to everyone. And that was Spinifex Gum with their song Together, which I think is a very appropriate song at this point in time as we... As the uh, the TV ads keep saying, we are all in this together. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And speaking of all in this together, I think that's kind of why we have a radio station like Two FM. This is community radio. We're all in this together across Canberra. And uh, you can tune in on 98.3 FM on the dial or at 2xxfm.org.au. We are people-powered radio, volunteer-based, not-for-profit community radio station. And uh, we do depend on the support of listeners, just like yourself. So if uh, you do enjoy two 2xx I'd encourage you to subscribe, donate, or come in and volunteer. Check out more at 2xxfm.org.au. My name is Broderick, and I am here on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. Today, we're talking about the latest news in science. There's been a bit of focus on coronavirus and what's going on uh, so far in the world, Um but uh I promise we'd go away from it a little bit too. But before I get too far, uh I guess uh look, let, let's let's go slowly over and uh let's have a look at uh, our food eating habits because a new food has become a bit of a pandemic hit. And, uh, well, in fact, I think it became a hit before the pandemic came out because my wife went to the shop when the bushfire scare was on and bought a few tins of these. And I rolled my eyes at her. I said, we're never going to eat those. We're not going to eat them. They're just going to sit in the cupboard for ages. Uh, But they're sitting in our emergency box as our emergency food, should something happen. What am I talking about, folks? What do you think? It's the old favourite. It's the baked beans. Yes, baked beans. What a thing to have in a tin. They're great. <laughs> they look after you. But uh, are they actually any good for you? Well, that's what uh, what we want to have a look at here. And look, it's interesting to note a uh, big uh, cannery for baked beans down in Shepperton, uh, where they've actually been doubling, they've doubled their usual volume of baked bean production, producing half a million cans a day. That's 500,000 cans of baked beans. But look, are they just uh, some easy food in a tin, or are they actually good for you? Well, it's surprising. Nutritionists actually really like baked beans. If we look at uh, Australians as a whole, only 7% of Australian adults and 5% of children actually eat sufficient serves of vegetables in their daily diet, according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. That's worrying, isn't it? Only 7% of Aussie adults. So most of us probably need to be eating more veggies and beans and legumes. And uh, they're one option that actually give you a lot of nutritional bang for your buck if you dive into the beans and legumes side of things. They've got protein, particularly for vegetarians, And they come with iron and other essential minerals, folate, manganese, vitamin B1. They're sounding pretty good. And uh, they've got fiber in them too, soluble fiber, uh, the kind that uh, brings water in, slows your digestion, brings down that glycemic index or your ability uh, to affect blood glucose levels, so slowing down the distribution of sugar in there. So it means when you actually eat beans, it makes you feel full for longer less tempted to snack on other unhealthy things in there. So that's why the legumes, the beans have shown to be beneficial many times. So when we're talking baked beans though, what is a baked bean? Now this was something that I didn't know. I I kind of hadn't put Even though bean is in the title, I reckon as a kid, I just thought baked beans were this weird pasta thing. Because you had tin spaghetti and tin baked beans. And tin spaghetti was like a pasta, although that wasn't like normal pasta. And I think I just thought the baked beans were this weird pasta thing as well. But they're actually a bean. They're from the legume family. Um... And they're actually haricot beans, more commonly called navy beans, because they were chosen in the uh, 19th century to feed the American navy. It came to Australia via America too, actually through the US company Heinz, uh, and uh, started producing them locally in Australia when uh, tariffs around here made it expensive to import tinned food. From there, World War II, large numbers of American troops over here in Australia, local farmers began to grow navy beans and uh, start canning the baked beans. So there you go. That's where they come from. They're genuine beans. They're not some weird creation. But when they're put in that tin, in that can, are they still good for you? Because, you know, veggies are pretty perishable. you gotta, you got to look after them. And, you know, sometimes we do things like freeze them, dry them, pickle them. Uh, canning as well, another thing to help us uh, keep our food out of season. Now, what actually happens when you can? Well, you create an airtight vacuum inside that uh, prevents the microorganisms, the bacteria, from entering um, in there. So, you know, you're not going to have any bad things uh, causing things to go bad in there. And then the can is heated with high-pressure steam to kill anything that might be inside there. Uh, It also that heat also deactivates the enzymes that are in that food that can cause it to break down and spoil. Um, so when you heat things, look, sometimes when you heat fruit and veg, you can decrease the levels of vitamins and minerals uh, in there. But uh, canning technology, well, they're kind of trying to to maximise um, that, that balance in there. So trying to kill as many bugs as possible, but also maintain nutrition and structure in the food. Uh, and uh, in the case of baked beans, it, uh, cooking them also makes that fibre inside them more digestible, easier to eat, better for you. Um, the other thing, of course, is that baked beans come with a tomato sauce, and that tomato sauce actually plays a role as well. Uh, foods with lower acidity require higher temperatures, longer cooking times to ensure they're safely sterilised. And uh, For the tomatoes in there, that actually raises the acidity of the whole thing and uh, delivers an additional bonus. Um, Beans are also a good source of iron. The vitamin C in the tomatoes helps your body absorb more of that iron, uh, and and that's in there. And look, there is sugar and salt content in there, um, but uh, some of those sugars also naturally occurring in the tomatoes. So it's not too bad. So look, all up, baked beans are pretty good for you. So there you go. So if you do happen to have a few cans sitting there from your pandemic panic buying or your your bushfire prepping uh, partner, get into them because they're good for you. So baked beans, folks, it's uh, they're healthy for you. They might make a few uh, smells come out the other end, but uh, look, it's uh, it's still gonna make your uh, your you feel good about it all. So there you go. All right, let's move on from baked beans now, though, to, to, uh, well, I was talking about buying uh, baked beans during the bushfire panic, and uh, I think let's let's go back to the bushfires. I don't want to bring up uh, too many bad memories in here, but I do want to talk about a positive story that's coming uh, out of this, where citizen science is going to help us through our bushfire recovery plan. That's right. Uh, CSIRO is working with a range of agencies and community groups to help support research underway throughout the bushfire impacted areas. It's called the Citizen Science Bushfire Project Finder, and it's a website that allows members of the public to contribute to projects in their area, ranging from air quality to identifying and confirming animal and plant sightings, while, of course, maintaining safe social distancing practices. So you can do it at the moment. You can also get involved online by identifying animals in camera images. So it's a new website that's out there now. You can find it at uh, csiro.au slash bushfireprojects, or one word, bushfire projects, and it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, there's there's things happening in there uh, where scientists and citizens are working together. So there's artificial intelligence, satellite imaging, seasonal decadal climate modelling to respond to fires, get ahead of the next bushfire season. But all this is dependent on data coming in. And that was said by CSIRO CEO, Dr Larry Marshall. And so to get more data in... Well, scientists can do a whole lot of work, but um, the power that people have is really great. And so, the power of citizen science in there can help uh, process more of this data so we can understand what's going on at the moment, what's happening out there, and uh, continue to feed in the data so we can continue to be prepared for future bushfires. So, it's a fantastic project there. So, if you want to check it out, as I said, www.csiro.au slash bushfireprojects. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on Two XFM community radio, people-powered radio here in Canberra, and uh, we're covering a range of the latest science stories. And before we go to another song, I thought I'd share this lovely little science story that uh, came out recently uh, of a new uh, six-legged creature Uh, that's been discovered in the harsh Antarctic environment that an Australian scientist has named after climate change activist Greta Thunberg. It's the creature known as a springtail, and if you uh, take a look at it, it looks a bit like, uh, I don't know, it's what I imagine head lice to look like or some insect like that. Um, Yeah, it was identified by Penelope Greenslade, an honorary research fellow at Federation University, and... uh, She decided to name it after Greta Thunberg because climate change is particularly evident in the Antarctic, where this creature is from. And you can actually measure the glaciers melting down there. And so it seemed appropriate to name the Antarctic species after Greta because she's been doing such a good job of drawing attention around the world, especially among young people, to the climate change problem. So there you go. So this uh, this springtail, a soft wingless hexapod, similar to insects but not quite the same, uh, one to two millimetres in size, so you're not going to find them. Um, but this one was found down in Antarctica and uh, it's been called the Frisia gretae, gretae there after Greta Thunberg, lives in moss and algae at Cape Hallett on Antarctica, one of the few ice-free areas on the continent where there are a small range of invertebrates living. Uh, so there you go. So if you happen to go down to Antarctica, you can, uh, you can see it there, Greta Thunberg, uh, lending her name to the Frisia Greta. And that was Vallis Alps with their song Young. Roderick Matthews here on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday here on 2XXFM. This is Community Radio in Canberra, people powered radio, and it's great to have you tuning in. Now, at the moment, you might have seen some of the videos or pictures doing the rounds on social media of animals starting to take over the environment again. They're coming out of the woodwork because there's less people about uh, milling about in public places. And so the animals are taking control. And I spotted this story coming out of the Kimberley region of baby crocodiles slipping out in broom. Yes, that's right. There's some upgrades to fencing needed uh, because uh, the Malcolm Douglas Crocodile Park up in Broome had a mass of a mass escape of hatchlings, baby crocodiles. They reckon they slipped through a fence with uh, two discovered at nearby Cable Beach in April. Nine other hatchlings from the same nest currently remain unaccounted for. So there you go. And in a separate incident, a uh, older crocodile, about 20 centimetres long, got out of its pen, slipped out a gate, was found in a roadside drain. So the park owner, Arnett, park owners, are now installing more fencing along the park perimeter, making changes so that it doesn't happen again. The two baby crocodiles down at Cable Beach were actually found by local women going for walks with their children, and uh, they spotted the small reptile hiding next to a rock at sunset first spotted it. I thought it was a lizard, but then realized it was a crocodile. And uh, they actually stood back because they thought there might have been a mother crocodile about. Uh, But they stayed with it as it got dark, and then um, they were returned to the Malcolm Douglas Crocodile Park there. So, you know, animals taking over our cities, or just escaping uh, from the zoos and that sort of thing. So, some interesting times indeed. All right. Let's move on now to a uh, interesting story that uh, came out this week, uh, looking at uh, a new material that researchers are trialling uh, to improve soil fertility and increase, pro- uh, increase crop productivity in grain-growing regions of Australia. Now, the interesting thing about this new material is it's actually obtained from human waste. Yeah, we're talking about biosolids, they come from dry sewage and are used as a could be used as a possible solution to subsoil issues which are currently playing havoc with the Victorian grain industry. Um, So this project is coming out of Federation University and uh, they're looking at uh, how this could change what's going on. Australia, we've got large amounts of clay in the soil and subsoil constraints are very prominent in Australia more than 80% of our grain-growing soils have some sort of constraint on them. Uh, And so when you go below 30 to 40 centimetres from the surface, you find very hard clay, the hard pan, restricts the crop to grow up to their potential yield. And uh, so the researchers decided that well, we need to have a look at this and have a look at how we can uh, get more into that subsoil. Uh, And so they started introducing uh, biosolids from state sewage as a potentially financial viable solution to this problem. There's good organic matter in there. It's rich with nutrients, all the minerals required for crop growth. And uh, state-of-the-art technology is used to produce these biosolids in uh, water amelioration centres across Australia. So it's a very clean product, uh, which is, I think, important here. Um, farmers already try and improve soil by using fertilisers such as lucerne pellets or chicken manure but the current products are quite expensive Uh, farmers can't always afford to use them and uh, so the biosolids application is is another way of looking at it Uh, the key for this though is actually reaching below the surface to fertilise and loosen the hard clay uh, subsoil underneath Uh, so they're placing that rich biosolids uh, onto the surface of the clay to start to capitalise on that zone and uh, make some difference in there. It's definitely a long-term investment, though, and they're still going through trials, and it's going to continue on for another couple of years, this research. Um, but it's uh, it's promising so far. Uh, the scientists have said that they've uh, excavated in the growing areas and could see that the crops have sent the roots downwards towards where they place the biosolids, which is a good sign, starting to break up that clay soil and see some difference in there. So an interesting a little scientific trial out there in the farm world. And uh, speaking of the farm world, well, look, farmers get, have it tough. They're trying to grow crops in difficult climate, and sometimes they are affected by the insects too. I've driven through locust plagues across the hay plain. It's uh, not a good spot to be. But uh, insects around the world have uh, actually been declining, and it had been quite worrying um, for scientists. They, they thought that it was almost reaching an insect apocalypse. And That is concerning because while insects might be seen as pests, in reality they are actually really important parts of our ecosystem. And uh, estimates of this insect apocalypse had put insect decline at as much as 25% per decade, stoking worries that we are on the precipice of a mass extinction event, huge ripple effect through the world's ecosystem. Uh, But new research published earlier this week found that the average rate of decline is more like 9%, and some freshwater populations of insects are actually increasing at an average rate of 11% per decade globally. So, look, this was a a, a meta-analysis of 160 long-term insect population studies across 41 countries, and it found that there's a higher range of variability in terrestrial insect population trends depending on the location. So north, parts of North America and Europe had the biggest population losses. Some sites in Western Europe and Asia, though, so it showed an overall increase in insect numbers. Uh, in this study, there wasn't enough data from Australia to establish a trend there. So look, it, it's quite interesting. So it's a mass evaluation of all this data that's out there to genuinely analyse it and work out what's going on. And so it's uh, it's a good good result here. Um, to see this and it's, it's uh, an interesting one. And I guess it's also um, looking at uh, the, the results here and part of the reason why the researchers think that the rate of insect loss wasn't as dramatic as they feared um, is because they're aware of the existence of many data sets that hadn't actually previously made it into the discussion about insect decline. And the reason why these data sets might not have been published or why they didn't show any declines was because of publication bias because scientific journals don't often publish no result or nothing of interest and so uh, journals probably don't rush to publish a study that finds for instance it's the same number of insects this year as there were 50 years ago Uh, on the flip side though if you find a whole lot less insects then they're going to rush to publish there so look this study kind of puts it all together in one spot and says it's not quite as bad as we thought it's still not good Uh, you know reduced rate is 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 okay, but uh, 9% per decade decline is still quite high and there are going to be severe consequences if we don't reverse this trend, um, you know, uh, looking at uh, insects and the role they play in um, in controlling our ecosystem, in pollinating our fruits and vegetables, our flowers, in playing a critical role. Uh, They're small creatures, but uh, they really are so important out there. So, uh, yeah, it's important that we continue to uh, look after our insects and uh, continue to look at this long-term population trend so we can work out what's going on with them and look after them where we can. Peach Lane there with Take This Day. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday here on Two XFM Community Radio in Canberra. We're people-powered radio volunteer presenters who put on amazing shows. I'm not tooting my own horn here. I'm tooting everyone else's horn because there's amazing content being produced out there. Uh, so check it all out, 2xxfm.org.au. Well, today we are talking science, and uh, if you're looking at your windows at the moment, look, it's been a pretty cold, terrible week, which is a sign that winter is coming. But before winter, we of course get the wonderful autumn, and this time of year around Canberra, you start to see the autumn leaves changing. But what's actually going on in those leaves? Well, that's a really interesting question. We see the colours changing, going from greens into the yellows, the reds. And what it is is, well, plants, they're rhythmic beings. They have internal biological clocks. Uh, They're not keeping time as such, but they are affected by the light. So it enables them to tell when the days are getting shorter. As they start to detect this change, they know that winter is coming. And they have to get prepared for winter. And to get prepared, they need to start storing energy, building up that energy inside them, storing it around. And uh, once it starts getting cooler as well, signals that to the plants it's no longer worth the leaves photosynthesizing. That's using sunlight to make the energy. And so if it doesn't need to use the sunlight to make energy, then the chlorophyll that's in the leaves, that green color, isn't necessary. And so it starts to break down the pigments and other chemicals in its leaves to salvage the nutrients that are there, like nitrogen. And so this sees the green slowly disappear from these leaves and become yellow, become red, become purple, uh, depending on the species of trees. Uh, And slowly they disappear. Those greens go out and then the yellow. And then um, eventually you just lose, lose all the leaves altogether. It's quite a beautiful period of time, and it's quite interesting to think about, really. I I quite like that way of looking at at the environment around us to think that, yes, it's beautiful. All those colours coming through there are just absolutely lovely, but it's all coming about because we have uh, these amazing chemical processes that are going on within these leaves. Uh, Speaking of chemical processes and sun and what's going on, I'm going to finish with a story from CSIRO today uh, that's come out from them looking at uh, solar energy. Yeah, the sun producing energy, but not from panels, but from window glass. Yes, we could soon have windows that are powering our buildings. SIRO is talking about semi-transparent solar cells that can be incorporated into window glass. Um, And the research is happening out of the ARC, and I love this place, the ARC Centre of Excellence in Exciton Science uh, at Monash University. And they've been producing the next generation of solar cells using perovskite crystals that can generate electricity while allowing light to pass through. So it means they can be a window. Uh, And they're now investigating how this uh, solar cell that allows light to pass through can be incorporated into a window uh, with commercial company Viridian Glass. It's going to transform the way we look at our windows. Active power generators changing our building design. Two square metres of solar window, according to the researchers, is going to generate as much electricity as the standard rooftop solar panel. Can you imagine that? Just two square metres of window going to generate just as much as a panel. We're going to change the way we look at these windows around our houses. Now, previously, these ideas have happened before. It's not new, but prior designs have failed because they were expensive, unstable, or inefficient. Uh, but the, the uh, Exciton science uh, research area, along with Monash University, used a different approach uh, they used an organic semiconductor that can, they can turn into a polymer, and they use this to replace uh, the commonly used solar cell component known as uh, which shows low stability because it develops an unhelpful watery coating. And so with their substitute in there, this new organic semiconductor, it produced astonishing results. Now, when we compare it to rooftop solar cells, they've got an efficiency of about 15 to 20%. So, about 15 to 20% of the light energy that hits those cells is converted into electricity. For these semi transparent cells, they've got a conversion efficiency of 17%. 17% so that's pretty huge and still transmit more than 10% of the incoming light so they're right in the zone of uh, creating great electricity but still allowing light through to behave like a window. Uh, They've done it in the lab now they have to work up on scaling up the manufacturing process working with large-scale glass manufacturers so that it can be transferred into industry readily uptaking the technology it's going to be amazing. There's always a trade-off. The solar cells can be made more or less transparent. The more transparent they are, though, the less electricity they generate. So it becomes something for architects to consider. You've almost got solar cell tinted windows. Where do you want those tinted windows or versus where do you want a full-on window? But uh, it's going to be amazing. They're certainly going to be more expensive than regular windows in there. That's understandable. But It means that the building that they're incorporated into could potentially be generating its own electricity. So it just makes it such a a fantastic option that uh, these solar windows uh, can be out there and just showcase what's going on. Just an amazing display indeed. I'm so impressed. I'm so excited about what that could potentially bring. And I think that's a good spot to leave it, folks. A bit of excitement in science. There's amazing things going on in the world around us. Uh, Don't forget to stick your head outside the door and breathe in the fresh air. Keep yourself safe, of course, but uh, make sure you still engage with the world around you in every way that you can uh, while keeping physically distant. That wraps up this episode of Fuzzy Logic today. If you enjoyed today's show, uh, you can find our podcast. Just search for Fuzzy Logic and uh, you can see us in iTunes or uh, Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. You can also find us there. And uh, we are on Facebook and Twitter too, at Fuzzy, so- Fuzzy Logic Sci on Twitter. That's Fuzzy Logic Sci, S-C-I, on Twitter. My name is Broderick Matthews. It's been a pleasure to have you with us today as we've been doing Delving into the world of science for Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.